Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. So if you have your Bible or your phone, if you're able to do that there, if not, just kind of listen carefully. And the question is, what does this mean is what we really want to discuss. I want to hear more from you than from me here, at least at the beginning. Uh, Does somebody want to read Romans 12, 1 and 2 to start with? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, my, by the mercies of God, to present your body a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Right, very good. But so the question is, is what does this mean? I, in particular, I'm looking at Romans 12, 2, which says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So really briefly, we talked last time about the fact that the priest in the kingdom of God becomes the sacrifice. That's one of the distinctions between the New Testament and the old. The priest is also the sacrifice. And the sacrifice is ourselves. Your body is the living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Verse 2, what does it mean to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind? There's been one common thread. I don't, you probably didn't see it. Pretty consistent through almost everything, every comment. And that is that you all read the passage in a certain way, which is natural and normal because we're all Westerners. (laughs) We all read the passage as though it was applying to our personal walk with Christ and our personal individualism which is fine. That's great. I don't think Paul would have a problem with that. I just don't think Paul thought that way. Hmm. Paul was a collectivist. He thought thought of a corporate society that we live communally, like more in jazz cultural context, we'd be much more familiar with this. And so I think he's, I think Paul's talking to the community of God's people Hmm. and not necessarily the individuals within it. doesn't mean that individuals within it can't apply this to themselves as we do. I think he's speaking to the community though, and saying as a community, I want you to be different than the way the world does things. The church operates different than the world, than the nation states. And now when you take it on that level, we get a little bit beyond the personal application of our spirituality, not being worried about consumerism or not being absorbed with self. And I think those are great answers, by the way, selfishness, things like that. We start looking at it more corporately. And I think it actually brings it into a a bigger context. And this is, that's a, that's a really a good point. Okay. So I had a conversation with a pastor this week and going back and forth, it was a really cordial conversation. And I realized after a f- few texts back and forth, I'm like, oh, I think I might want to make sure I make this point clear before I go any further. And the point is this, when, when someone challenges something that you or I hold dear, belief, a conviction, a theological, a political, a social, whatever it might be. And this, I'm speaking for myself. Okay. So the, the context I come from is your immediate response is going is, well, what is that going to mean for me? In other words, we don't go, are you right or wrong? Is that true or false? You immediately, I think you immediately think of what are the implications of that? And do I like the implications or not? And if I don't like the implications, I might resist a little bit more whether I think you're right or wrong right now. I think that's human nature a little bit. And I realize, oh, so when I speak negative about this, they're probably thinking, oh, wait, is Rob going down that path? 
And so let me make it clear. I am not advocating for any political system or for any national form of economics or government. I think they're all bad. I think, they're, I think that's the whole point, that the kingdoms of the world, period, all of them, they all have their own selfish ends in mind and none of them work. Now, I'm not saying that one might not be better than the other. That's fine. But so when we go to you know, the modern conflict with Ukraine and Russia, whatever, it's like, okay, Russia is really, really bad. And obviously we're the good guys. And like, no, that's not, that doesn't mean that Russia is not really, really bad here, but that's not run to say that, say that we're, the, we're the good guys. So what I'm saying, hey, Jesus is saying this about economics or money or finances or politics or whatever. I'm not therefore, because it's obviously it's, it's going to undermine kind of the, the system that we know. I'm not therefore advocating for something else like socialism or communism. I think they're all, they're all, they're all bad. Jesus's economic system and is what he's calling the community to, to do or to be would never work in any governmental system. Imagine a president, a dictator or whatever saying, you know, I know you guys over there don't like us, but I'm gonna love you so much, I'll die for you. Because immediately you would be invaded by that other empire and you would die. It doesn't work. A nation can't be, you know, I don't like the word pacifism, but nonviolent resistors. A nation can't be nonviolent resistors because they're gonna be invaded. They won't exist any longer. So the ethic of Jesus only works in his kingdom with the benevolent king. If you have a benevolent king, then that's fine. You can die for them and they're not going to invade you. But you don't have that in any system. So I just want to make sure that's clear. I don't know if, I've ever, if you've ever gone, I wonder where Rob's at on this. I, I don't advocate for any particular political party or any economic system, socialism, communism, capitalism. I think they're all problematic. And I don't have a problem saying that one might be better than the other, but I don't even like saying that because I don't want you thinking that one's actually good and inherently they're all problematic. And I think a power does that to people. So with that being said, then I think that jazz has kind of hit, hit the nail on the head. And that is, if you look at the church in acts two, no, let's put it this way in the ancient world, uh, actually in, in parts of the world today, girl babies are aborted at higher rates than boy babies because girl babies are economically impacting more than a boy contributes to the family's welfare, a girl hinders the family's welfare in some societies. In ancient Rome, the girl the baby would just be, they, went, they did do abortions, but sometimes the baby would just be discarded. Okay, that's an ethical issue that's impacted by your money, by, by finance, And I think Jesus is coming along saying, no, no, we care for the least of these. And I, and I think that's, so it's all, everything that you guys are saying, but I think it's also this bigger picture of saying, yeah, we are not worried about our financial security or our personal security. We're just going to go care, love people. Mm. And the elderly people who are discarded because they're a burden on society, or I'm listening to a really horrible book right now, uh, but uh, talking about, <laughs> uh, it's talking about the Nazis and stuff like that, right? And the Nazis, I've actually seen a propaganda, I actually have a copy of it, a German propaganda film from 19, like. 42. I mean, it's, it's way back there. And I have a copy of the video. It's on VHS. So I don't think it can play on anything any longer. I need to get it put on a DVD or a CD or whatever, my DVD type thing. But uh, it's, I think the name of it was Dasein ohne Leben, which is Life Unworthy of Life. It's a Nazi propaganda film that they showed on the only Nazi, on the only television program that was allowed to be aired. And it was about mentally and physically disabled persons who are life unworthy of life. 
And literally in the film, they talk about, I watched this several times in the video, uh, the film, they talk about the fact that these people, you know, they're so far, you know, brainless or whatever it might be. And they show obviously the worst case scenarios, you know, the best thing that you could do, the most moral thing you could do, the most compassionate thing you could do is kill them off. And also they're a burden on the economic system. And they show all these beautiful housing communities that we can build all the houses and all these factories if we didn't have the money going to care for the, these people. It's like, oh my, but, and we think, oh, that's just like radical. Actually, that happens all over the world, all throughout history. <clears throat> it just does. And I think it's, so I think it's all these things about, yeah, not being selfish and not being uh, overcome with, uh, with greed or overcome with gluttony or whatever, right? That's all true. But I think it's also saying, yeah, let's just, I don't know how we do this any longer, but you know, if you go to the book of Acts, I think that's just the, the ideal scenario, but I, I don't think it's practical today. What if the local church, I think you can do this. What if a local church pooled their resources together even more emphatically than they do nowadays and gave, cared for? I've been the senior pastor too, and, and you have to use discretion because people will take advantage of you and and, and, and somebody will take away, take that money and use it for whatever. And that takes away from somebody else that might have need. Uh, okay. Yeah. But what if they, we were doing that? What if we were just so united as a local community of, of Christians that we pulled our resources, our, whether your medical abilities or whether your financial uh, background or whether you, you, know, you hired people to come work at your factory or whatever, because they, what if we did all the, what if that's what the church was known for? I, I think that's what Paul's getting at. I don't know. Any thoughts on that or comments? Yeah, I, I have a thought. So I, I was kind of thinking um, the the word community hit me. I think that Christians don't act in unison. I mean, they're disparate and they're spread all over the place. And, you know, you have all the uh, denominations and whatever. I think if, if there was a unified, if there was a way to unify mm -hmm you know, our actions, I don't want to say unify our actions, but if we truly believed all, everybody believed the same thing and demonstrated those gifts of kindness and love throughout the world, I think the world will be a, a different place. But I, I don't know how you get everybody acting or being in unison to do that. Because then, then we would truly be an example of, and it would be obvious, right? It just wouldn't be like a pocket. It would be it would be worldwide. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think you're talking just like Paul did right now, right? Just like Paul, I think Paul would say the same thing that you just said. Yeah, absolutely. In, in one of the podcasts I'm going to send you, there's a black church in New York right now that has something like 41,000 members. And it started in a storefront church with four people. Well, but that pastor well. pretty dynamic. Yeah. But he, they have, I think it's like a seven block area. And uh, I want to say the Bronx and they're putting a consortium together with local developers to build medium to low income housing up to, I wanna say it was 21,000 uh, 21, units. And they're putting in, uh, they're putting in uh, uh, rates for first responders, but they're also uh, inviting wealthy people and low income people. And they're trying to distribute the causing or the cost across the board so that more people can live there. But they're also putting in medical facilities. They're putting in schools. They're putting in daycare. They're putting in trade schools and things to help the community develop and flourish and move forward. And hopefully, 
I like not to use the term pay it forward, but to see if they can't potentially grow this in a broader spectrum. Because he talks about we have these values in our faith, but why aren't we taking care of community and expanding community so that we can have a thriving environment where people will see our love? And if they can see our love, that mm-hmm. might serve as the way we're supposed to be serving. So it's I was blown away by that. I've never heard of that. But a yeah, church yeah. is actually doing what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In places, absolutely. Yeah. If we did that, the world would know the whole point of the Old Testament story that we looked at. The world would know who we are. So let me make a couple of notes here. One is in talking about with the Russian individuals that we're going to have on the podcast and talking with the Americans that we discussed, one of the Americans made a very, who lived in Russia for a number of years, made a really incredible comment to me about a couple of months back. He said, he said, you know, Rob, people have this mindset that communism made Christianity illegal. He said, communism didn't make Christianity illegal. He said, what communism did is that, is that you couldn't do Christian deeds any longer. Hmm. You couldn't do acts of charity. You couldn't do compassion. You couldn't do homeless shelters. You couldn't care for the, the widows. You couldn't care for the ill. He said, because the state was going to do all that. And so what you were left with was a skeleton of the church just being like this religious spiritual uh, sphere. And I thought, oh, yeah, it's basically taking the essence of the church away from the church and you're just left with a spiritual shell, which is not who we are, and a really effective way to eliminate the church from who it is. But they commented, and I've heard conversations since then as well, that makes them really difficult for them to actually act Christian-like in front of everybody else now, because the people of Russia now have this mindset of, oh, we don't do that. The state does that. Or you want me to give money to do this? No, the state takes my money to do that. And so you can even ask for money for those things. And it's almost like, no, that's not acceptable. We, we, don't, we don't do that. And so it, it's really had an effective impact on making the church simply no longer impactful. Mm-hmm. The other thing would be, you, you just can't underemphasize the role of the devil in all this, right? Let's be honest. The devil mm-hmm. knows that what Scott said is exactly true. And he's like, I can't let that happen. And he's called the deceiver throughout scripture. And one of the things he's going to do is go, well, one of the things I'm going to do first off is I'm going to go ahead and divide these people up as much as I can and cause all this dissension and make sure that they're never going to be this unified force. And so I think because it's so easy to get disgruntled when you look at Christendom for me and Western, Western Christianity and go, it's just a farce. It's a joke. You see all these things, people doing these things in the name of Jesus and the political stuff that we've seen in left and right the last number of years. You know, and you see Ravi Zacharias, who we thought was this great idol, you know, Christian, mm. he was guilty. And you see all these things going on. And you're like, yeah, this is just a farce. And you're like, that's exactly what happens when the devil gets in the middle of it all, is he wants to bring us all down and say, see, I won. And, he, and then he wants us, who really do want to follow Jesus, to just to, just to give up. So he, he got everybody else, gave the church a bad reputation, makes our evangelism hard. And then he gets the rest of us kind of just throw our hands up and go, I, just, I quit. So one more thought here, and that is in response to what Scott said, I think I'd say, well, it's never going to happen that way, right? We're never going to get unified again, like, like we should be. But what if your church did? What if your church did it? Like Anthony's talking about, what if that church in New York, they said, we're going to do it. You know, and you just get these pockets of people who are doing it. I think that can, that can spread revival. So any other thoughts? Mm-hmm. Um, so Rob, do you think um, our perspective of 
that we're all everywhere and not we're not coming together you think our thought of that it being somewhat of an impossible is to some degree our own lack of faith maybe but i'd also say no, I know some people, they're just never going to get together no matter what. I mean, I know some people that are going to, they're never going to ally with Catholics because in their mind, Catholics aren't even Christians anyways. And I know some people that will never look at mainline Christians and go, no, there's no way. And I know some people that are really far on the left that go, you know, you guys over on the right, you're so narrow-minded and whatever else. There's, so I think it's just pragmatism that says, yeah, I just don't see it happening. So and I, I still think there's also an enemy out there that's not going to let it happen either. So I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. But so, yeah, maybe it could be a little bit of lack of faith. But I think it's also a little bit of like, no, I know if enough Christians, there's just no way you're going to get these two people in the same room, even though they're both brothers and sisters in Christ. So you're just trying to be real with it. That's all. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Hey, let's go to the book of Genesis. And this is tonight's notes. We're going to read a story and maybe talk a little bit more about it. And then we'll. So what we've been trying to do is to establish the role of justice in the church or in the scripture, and what does it mean for us, and how do we go about it. And what I've been trying to do a little bit is say, okay, here's, here's the gospel, here's the kingdom, and here's where justice fits into the kingdom. And then we had to say, okay, now what does justice mean? So we know that justice is a, an important part of the kingdom. Now to say, what does it mean? And again, I thought, I realized, oh, I probably should have said a long time ago, yeah, I'm not advocating for socialism, communism, Americans way, American way, democracy. I'm not advocating for any of those things because they're all problematic. I think people might be listening and going, well, I don't know where is he going to go with this justice thing because I'm not sure. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, I probably should have said that a long time ago, like two years ago. All right. So Genesis 18, and uh, let's read verses 16. Let's just go 16 to 33. Let's just do the whole, pa- the whole passage. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But then, but he said, yes, you did laugh. As Abraham pleads for Sodom as the, yeah, the heading. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what am I about to do? Should I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great that their sin and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Then the men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people? In the city, will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not, far be it from you, will 
not judge of all the earth to do right. Is that okay? Or... Yeah, somebody else want to pick it up? Thank you, Scott. Yep. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the entire place on their account. And Abraham replied, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am only dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the entire city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on the account of 20. And he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. What are some things you see in the story? What are some things that stand out to you? This is the first recorded auction in history. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there, there might be something actually on some of the tablets that have been found also. Yeah. Abraham's pretty persistent. Okay. Yeah. Very good. I think he's, he's persistent, but also I think that he was able to persuade God to do something. Right. <laughs> pretty, pretty powerful. And God's being pretty gracious because 10 mm. in the two big, huge cities, that's a really small percentage. Yeah, very good. It's kind of speaking to, I think, someone said, I think it might have been Scott, but I've always saw this as when people say God never changes his mind. I've heard that saying as well as I believe God never changes, but this seems to me, God, uh, he used the term, I think it was Scott's used the term persuaded or, or Anthony, someone did anyway, persuaded. And it seems that God did change his mind here. <clears throat> yeah, it's just an observation of mine. It's mm -hmm. kind of a. And then, you know, maybe he didn't, maybe he just was showing his grace. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, I think yeah. what would have gone on if he would have said, what if there's only one? And God would have said, I'll spare it if there's one. Yeah. yeah. yeah there's even a parable about that, right? The unjust judge. And the woman comes in and keeps begging, look, look, look. All right, so shut her up. I'll, I'll go ahead and do what she wants. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. That's my vernacular, by the way. I'm not sure if that's quite a paraphrase of the actual not Greek or not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does not, not the yeah. heading in the book, the unjust judge or the uh... the unjust judge is there, yeah. Yeah. Right. What was that, Andy? He he does not want us to stop asking. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it may be. Yeah. Look earlier in the passage. Does anything stand out earlier in the text? In the story? I find it intriguing that God's like, Well, I'm about to do this, but I think I should tell Abraham. Like, what are you gonna tell him for? Just do it, right? Shall I hide from Abraham? Like, you don't have to consult him, but it's almost like I got to consult with Abraham. That's one thing that stands out to me. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, another thing that stands out to me is verse 20. The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is exceedingly grave. Why is God acting? Because people are crying out for justice. In other words, the outcry isn't the bad people. 
The outcry are the people that are suffering at the hands of the bad people. Oh, and this yeah. reminds us of the story in the book of Exodus. The Israelites are being oppressed by Pharaoh and their cry. And finally, God says, okay, I heard their cry. And then what does God do in the book of Genesis? I'm sorry, in the book of Exodus. After he hears the cries of the Israelites being oppressed, he says, oh, Moses. And that's, the, that's the point I was hoping, hoping to make a few weeks ago was not only is justice, the work of God and the work of his kingdom, but that God does his justice work through us. So, mm -hmm. Hey, Moses get to work. And now guess what? That, I think that's why he says, oh, Abraham, I probably ought to tell Abraham because Abraham is the means to which God's going to do the work. And look what he says in verse, which is the verse that we want to look at in more detail. But verse 19, the reason why I need to tell Abraham is because I've chosen him, verse 19, so that he can become, command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that Abraham, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he had spoken about him. So see, I called Abraham to do righteousness and justice. And so, yeah, I need, I need to tell him. One other thought I have, and see if you have any more comments, and that is the portrait that we commonly have of the biblical God, at least the one I was raised with, doesn't fit this text. Because we think of the Old Testament God as like this evil God that's going to judge. I mean, we know he's not evil, but he's always willing to judge. He always wants to strike people down. He always wants to destroy cities. He always wants to like wipe out the wicked. And he doesn't want to wipe them out here, does he? I mean, over yeah. and over again. By the way, I, I think it's actually, I kind of look at Abraham going, somebody said, somebody's selling a, a lamp and you go, to, you go to buy the lamp, they're selling for 25 bucks. And you're like, hey, you know, would you take 20? Like, sure. I'm like, dang, I should ask for 15, right? Right? I, I, you know, <laughs> if, they were that, if they were that quick to take 20, maybe they would have taken 15. Yeah, I'll take it for 15. Oh, I should have said 10, uh, you know, right? And, and then he's like, how about 10? And the guy, yeah, how about five, right? It's like, it's too late. You already agreed to give me 20. But for God, it's not too late. God's like, yeah, sure. And by the way, I think he would have said, if there's one righteous in the city. And there was one righteous in the city, by the way, it was Lot. But his answer was, well, I'll get Lot out at least. I find those things interesting. So if you're looking at the notes, Let's see. Abraham uh, was called to do the way of the Lord. And the two fill in the blanks are righteousness and justice. So Abraham was, and this is what the point I want to make. Abraham was called to do the way of the Lord. And the mm. way of the Lord is righteousness and justice. That's what God's way is. And so this is not an add-on or a bonus. And this is why I think, you know, we have so many issues in Christianity today. And we have so many people that are going, oh, justice, that's like left-wing stuff. Or is that going to be socialism or communism? I mean, what are, they, what are they talking about here? It's like, no, it's none of these things. It's, it's way beyond all those things. It's like cruciform living. This is what God's called us to do. Well, I, I, th those two words are kind of uh, charged in my mind. Yeah. Um, what do we really mean by righteousness and justice? Um, I mean, I kind of think of righteousness as being aligned with what God wants us to do according to the, according to the laws and the commandments in this case. Right. And just is a, you know, a situation where you live by some agreed principles and that if it, then if, if there is a disobedience to those principles, then potentially there's punishment. Right. So I, but I know, I know we kind of just gloss over them, but I think it's yeah. kind of important to get a sense of really what those two words mean. 
Right. And that's the whole point. That's exactly where we want to go. So very, very good. So the first thing to note is that these words are often paired in the Old Testament. They often, they often go together and you can't separate one from the other. Second thing is, is don't think of these in terms of individualism and piety. That righteousness means me going to church on Sunday and raising my hands or not raising my hands, depending on whether I'm a Presbyterian church or not, or me giving money into the offering plate, or that's not what righteousness means here. That's not at all what, what it means. So why don't we do this? If you have the notes, let's just actually, let's just go to the bottom, go below it. So if let's look, look at the outline here at the bottom. The notes kind of repeats the script up with the above. So if you've read the script from above, you probably already clued in pretty well. And the Bible Project video on justice is excellent. So the Bible Project, I think it's bibleproject.com, one word, uh, .com. They have a video and go to themes. Go to, go to video, click on videos and then click on themes and then look for justice. It's really good. So that'll, that'll help you get started there. All right. So Abraham is called to do the way of the Lord, uh, walking in Yahweh's way is to not walk in the way of the other gods of the nations here, contrast with Sodom. So same thing that we talked about with Romans 12, 1 and 2, and that is don't be conformed to the patterns of this world means that God's kingdom doesn't work the way the kingdoms of the world work. In fact, God's kingdom can actually be imposed on the kingdoms of the world because the whole idea of a Christian nation, it won't work because you're just going to get invaded. It's just, it's just not going to work. Second point, Genesis 18, 19, doing righteousness and justice. Uh, in Genesis 18, Yahweh, or Yahweh is God's divine name, draws upon Abraham's attention to his concerns about suffering and the oppressed. Psalm 103. There's actually a bunch of uh, verse I want to look at here if we have time, uh, time permitting. Right below that, if, if you have the notes, I believe this, I'm looking at the same notes that you have. I define righteousness and justice. And so in Hebrew, by the way, most Hebrew words are three letters long. They don't have vowels. So when you say the word out loud, you have to have vowel sounds. So later on, they added vowels, but they're actually like, they're like dots underneath the letter. So Hebrew alphabet has only, only consonants, no vowels. And they just simply added vowel sounds to, so you can sound out the word, make it a little bit easier to read. But if you go to modern, if you go to Hebrew, if you go to Israel today, all the signs are, there's no content, there's no vowels. They're just three letters or every once in a while, one will be like four letters long. So the three letters are S, D, and Q in modern day English, at least, Sadaka or Sadak. And the word means straight. And basically it means something that's fully fixed or, or the, it's what it should be. It, it establishes the norm. It's the standard by which everything else is measured by. That's what sadaka means. It's like the standard thing and everything else is measured according to it. So sadaka, when applied to human actions, is a highly relational word. And the idea being that it allows for an individual to live in such a way that they respond correctly to the values of a, of a given relationship. So for example, if, if this is making sense, letter A below that, it talks, the word sadaka is actually used in Leviticus 19, which is the holiness chapter. When it says, when you use accurate weights and measures, you're doing righteousness. So when you're, when you're weighing out the amount of grain that you're selling somebody, what you would do, of course, is you just like tip the scales a little bit so that you give them a little bit less grain. And they think they're getting a quarter of grain or a pound or whatever the measurement might be, but they're not because you cheated on the scale already. And that's allowing you to sell your grain a little bit more broadly there. You, you cheat. That's simply the way it does. And the book of Leviticus says, no, God's people use accurate weights and measures because our standard is righteousness. It says, you shall use just balances. And that's the word righteousness there. It's just. 
You should use just balances, just weights, just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So it's this word sadak, which is translated as just, but it's basically the word righteousness here. And you can see how righteousness and justice kind of overlap a little bit in its meaning. All right. Also, Psalm 23 uses the word sadaka or right, righteousness. Right. He, he leads me. Um, right. Verse three. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. So you can see this. It's not like, oh, he's guiding me to do like morally the right thing. No, he's, he's guiding me in safe places along the straight path. He's going to protect and provide for me so that uh, all is well. All right now, I'm going to go back a little bit more in a, in a minute and kind of discuss that more. Does that make sense so far? So r- righteousness yeah. is the standard that means just things and fairness and equity and things are the way they ought to be, so, so to speak. Justice is this Hebrew word mishvat or sapat, but mishvat. And it refers to the legal action that can cover a wide range. So it can refer to a lawyer or to a judge who arbitrates between two parties to discern what the just situation might be. And I think Scott kind of used the word justice in that sense there. To, it can also be used to pronounce who's guilty or who's innocent in a dispute. And then in a wide sense, it means to put things right, mm. to intervene in a situation that is wrong or oppressive or out of control and to fix it. And that's the reason why these two words actually go together so often, because what justice is trying to do is actually create righteousness. When things aren't right or aren't righteous, when you're not using right measures, you need justice to come in and fix the scales and establish a state of righteousness. That's why righteousness is the norm. It's the way things are supposed to be. And if everything was that way, there would be no need for justice. Justice only comes into the picture to correct or fix or implement or create a state of which righteousness abounds. So mishpat, letter a small a underneath the number two there, is often used in accord with the mishpat of the orphan or the widow and refers to their rightful case against those who exploit them. How about if I say it this way? Think of Jesus's miracles this way. When Jesus talks about love, and we might do this next week or in the next couple of weeks, When he talks about love in Luke 6, he says, love cares for the one lower than you against this Roman economic system where you only care for the person above you. That's just the way it worked in Rome. You care for the person above you and then they might, they owe you and they give you a favor, like a job or whatever it might be. You don't care for the poor and the oppressed because they just can't do anything for you. And Jesus says, no, God cares for the people below him because everyone's below God. And so when you care for the people below you, you're acting like God. Jesus goes on to say, like a good measure, shaken together, pressed down and stirred. And when he's, he's talking about taking this thing of grain and you shake it, get all the air bubbles out and the grain settles down and then put more into it. It's, it's Leviticus 19. For love, for Jesus, is this idea of justice. So then Jesus goes on and does what? In the very next chapter, a widow, which means she has no husband who can care or provide for her, her only son dies. Jesus goes and raises the kid from the dead or the son from the dead. We don't know how old he was. And we think, oh, what a great miracle. Jesus can raise the dead. And yes, that's true. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I'm restoring her to a position of righteousness where she has a a, a way of being provided for. Because without her son and no husband, she is doomed in this economic society. 
there's another story in Luke chapter seven. There's a man with, with a withered hand and he heals the hand. Oh, Jesus is the great physician. He can heal withered hands. That's true. But now the man can go back to work and provide for his own financial well-being. And then there's this woman that comes in and she's a, clearly this prostitute or some, something like that. And I mean, she's doing ridiculously wrong things by barging into this meal in the Simon, this man named Simon's home. And she lets her hair down and she washes Jesus' feet, which is lewd and gross and morally. I mean, she's acting scandalous. like a prostitute and Jesus is, is welcoming her. What's that? Uh, scandalous. It's scandalous. It's totally scandalous. And she shouldn't even be in there to begin with. And Simon says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman she is. And Jesus, knowing his thoughts, meaning I'm a prophet because I know what you're thinking, replies to him, right? And says, Simon, which one loves more? The one who's forgiven little or the one who's forgiven a lot? And the answer, of course, is, well, I guess the one who's forgiven a lot. He uses this economic story about one person having being forgiven of a little bit of debt, one being forgiven of a lot of debt, and see how love is being, he's talking about love in the context of debt and forgiveness. And then he says, I came into your home and you didn't even give me a greet me with a kiss. This woman hasn't stopped kissing me since she entered the house. Contrasting the two actions. Mm. And then Jesus, so Jesus has forgiven her sins. And then he says, go in peace. And the word for go in peace, of course, is shalom. And shalom doesn't mean goodbye. It means may you be well in all areas of life. May, may you be restored back to society. Mm. This woman is by definition a poor. She's an outcast. And when Jesus forgives her and restores her to society, he's doing what? He's doing justice and creating a state of righteousness. That's what he does when he raises the woman's son. That's what he does when he heals a withered hand. He's doing justice and bringing about a state of righteousness. And that is what Luke says is what love looks like. So does that, that make sense a little bit? I hope. That puts yeah. this all in, the, in this context. Yeah. This is not some Old Testament thing. It's yeah. not some socialism thing where we just give all the money to the government and let, make sure everybody has food. It's, it's way beyond that. It's an act of love that then restores people to a state where they can now have righteousness or a right standard. Last couple of thoughts here underneath that. Exodus 21 through 23, the covenant code or the book of the covenant is called the Mishpatim. And the I am, it just means it's a way of saying plural or something masculine word in the plural in Hebrew is im, a feminine word would have ot, ot at the end of it. So that's why there's four consonants on that one. Mishpatim, the book of the law, the law code is Exodus 20 is the 10 commandments. Exodus 21 to 23 are now applications of the 10 commandments. And the applications of the 10 commandments are called what? It's called the book of justice. Because that's what, that's what we do. And we talked about this already, right? The law for murder, do not murder is for who? It's for the king's to not abuse your people because the people have no recourse for justice if the kings, if there's no law against murder. The poor people aren't going to go kill the king. They know they're going to get in trouble whether there's a law or not. Mm. But the king can kill the poor person and get away with it. Sometimes even when there is a law, remember Ahab, Ahab and Jezebel killing uh, Naboth. So Mishvat, number three, refers to what needs to be done or justice. It refers to what needs to be done in a situation if the people and circumstances are, are to be restored to righteousness or sadaka. Mishvat is the actions required. Sadaka is the resultant state of affairs. In the New Jerusalem, there's no justice because everything is, is righteous. It's a state of righteousness or a, state, a righteous state. So in Genesis 18 verse 20, 
Sadaka is the word, the cry of pain for help, or it's a cry for justice of the oppressed. And the answer is, I'm going to call Abraham and Abraham's going to be the means through which I do righteousness. Okay. So now the next line is, and we might not have time to get into this tonight. What was the sin of Sodom? And I gave you, I gave you a cheat sheet because the answer is in the, in the as you go look 16, but you're not going to look it up right now. What was the sin of Sodom? What do you think the sin of Sodom was? Anybody have an answer? It says the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. When we think of outcry, I mean, I mean, somebody is being harmed gravely. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably their sin is probably their harm towards the despaired or those who have little. Okay. All right. Very good. The outcry is normally those who have nothing or who are being oppressed or harmed or hurt and given no way to uh, be okay. They're hitting all these roadblocks. So um, I can only imagine an outcry. We see outcries all the time in our world. You know, I imagine, you know, um, it's just like in Palestine, you hear the outcry there. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so that's what I think about, I guess. Okay. All right, very good. Okay. Somebody else have a thought? Being unjust. Okay, being unjust. Okay, very good. I base it on what was being threatened to the angels or to the men who came to visit a uh, lot, but, um, and I've yeah. heard this in different teachings as well, but wasn't it rampant sexual immorality? That's what we, that's the most rest, common, that's where the word sodomy yeah. comes from, right? That's where the word sodomy comes from. Right, right. That's the most common answer, but that's not the biblical answer. If it's okay. an outcry, it's anybody, yeah. right? If you read the story yeah. before this, there's a way of reading it as though, oh, it's not just sexual immorality, it's homosexuality. But that's probably not the best way reading in the text. That's something we can get into maybe in our Genesis study. So if you go to Ezekiel 16, we'll, we'll finish up with this. And then we'll maybe kind of pick this theme up a little bit ne- next week and then move into the New, New Testament as much as we can. So Ezekiel 16. Behold, and you can read more, the, read more of the passage when you get a chance. But verse 44, everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb concerning you. This is to the Israelites or to the southern tribe of Judah. So everyone will quote Proverbs, will quote this proverb concerning you, like mother, like daughter. You're the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and children. You're the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father was an Amorite, which actually, that's a bad thing, by the way. And now your older sister is Samaria, that's Israel in the north, who lives north of you with her daughters. And your younger sister who lives south of you is Sodom. That's where Sodom was located, was south of Judah. But Sodom doesn't exist at this time. Verse uh, 47, yet you haven't merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they. Now, let me stop. Genesis 18, God's going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah because of their conduct. And Ezekiel says, you did worse than them. Verse 48, as I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless Mm. ease, and she did not help the poor and the needy. That is not what we are told is a sin of Sodom. And I think that's something that we need to take a very deep look at in our own hearts and go, Mm. yeah, 
Whoa. Wow. What is this? Immediately we want to go to the American church. Don't go to the American church. Go to your heart first. Apply this to me first, right? To ourselves first. And then go, okay, great. Now what about my community? And then look outwardly. And I think uh, it's something that we need to uh, take a long look at. So, but notice that the, that the issue of sexual immorality actually is not on the list. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.